All right. So let's say the, the prayer of the first hour, Christ the true light, who enlighteneth and sanctifiest every man that cometh to the world, that the light of thy countenance be signed upon us, that in it we may see the unapproachable light and guide our steps in the doing of thy commandments to the intercessions of thy most holy mother and of all thy saints. Amen. So we, um, it's been a couple of weeks since we met, I think two weeks ago. Uh, last week was the Feast of the Forerunner, and many churches had either uh, uh, Vespers or all-night vigils. Um, and so th that last Thursday was not an opportune time, so we skipped it, and we're continuing today with the uh, chapter uh, of, by St. Nectarios on the role of the youth in society. Um, and I think we had gotten approximately halfway through it. Approximately. I think we were... Um, we had discussed through paragraph 10 or through section 10, um, nine or 10. And um, the question here that St. Nectarius in the first half of his essay um, tackles is the question of the, represent, the, the relationship between virtue and education and also the, the calling of the youth to attain virtue. Um, because, and this, and he grounds this, in, he makes this point in a couple different ways, but one of, one of his points is to acquire virtue for the sake of one's nation. Um, that it is the duty to, uh, of, of the youth to acquire virtue because virtue will save everything and vice will destroy everything. Right. And why does he talk about nations? He's going to start talking about the nation more uh, in these essays. Um, and uh, why does he talk about nations and nationhood, in particular, the Greek nation? Well, he talks about the Greek nation because he's Greek and he's writing to Greeks. But what is the role of the nation in orthodoxy? It's a big question because there's the whole problem of ethnophilitism because ethnophilitism is, an actu is actually a heresy that was condemned in a pan-Orthodox council in 1872. And, pan and, and ethnophilitism, so ethnophilitism has this combination of ethnos and phili, phili being race uh, or tribe. It could be in interpreted as tribalism. Philitism is also tribalism. You could stretch it and translate it as racism, but that racism is a top is a concept that occurs later, about in at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, um, and so and then ethnos right ethno tribalism is a way we can describe philatism and ethno philatism had two dimensions. The first dimension was the causing strife in the church through discriminating between, by discriminating between ethnic groups. So one ethnic group uh, clashing with another ethnic group in the church. Now the Orthodox Church, we say, is the Catholic Church, and it brings everyone together, right? And St. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, et cetera, et cetera. So that as the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church brings everyone together. And the Orthodox Church, of course, is, there's the universal church and the local church. The local church is just as important as the universal church. When the Roman Catholics have it the other way around, 
but the Orthodox are very clear. The Orthodox teaching is very clear that the local church is just as important and it has all the fullness of the universal church, of the Catholic church. And Catholic means universal, worldwide. And so in a particular locality, in a particular city, right, there's one bishop who unites all Orthodox Christians regardless of their uh, linguistic or ethnic background. That's not true in America. It is true, though, in the traditional Orthodox lands. Right? There's one bishop per city bringing all of these ethnic groups together. And so um, in the second half of the 1800s, there were ethnic groups that were clashing with each other. In particular, the Bulgarians. The Bulgarians wanted to have their own ethnic church. And they got permission from the sultan uh, within the Ottoman Empire to establish a parallel Orthodox church parallel to the Patriarchate of Constantinople, and they were clashing with not just the Greeks, but everyone who was loyal to the traditional canonical order. St. Nectarios was from Thrace, and Thrace was involved in this conflict. There were, um, there were Bulgarian and Greek populations in Thrace that, that clashed, and the, the Slavs uh, were actually divided. In Macedonia, they were e evenly divided between Slavs that wanted to be with the Bulgarian church and another group of Macedonian Slavs that want to be with the Patriarchate of Constantinople because that was the canonical church, right? So ethnophilitism is this cl clashing, this strife between eth Orthodox ethnic groups in, who live in the same city, in the same region. The second aspect of ethnophilitism is the establishment of parallel jurisdictions that correspond to separate ethnic, distinct ethnic groups. This is what this is the ecclesiological problem, right? That the Bulgarian schism created. They appointed bishops, so they got permission from the Sultan to establish not just their own synod in Bulgaria, but to appoint bishops everywhere, wherever there were Bulgarians in the Ottoman Empire, including in Constantinople. <laughs> including in Constantinople, there was a Bulgarian bishop. That's how ridiculous it was. Uh, Constantinople is the patriarchs. Um, jurisdiction, right? So it, there's no question, there's never a question about that until the 1870. So that's ethnophilitism, and that's been condemned. The problem that many people have is that we think that, you know, ethnophilitism means that all mention of, eth of ethnos and nations is a bad thing, and that's not true. It's simply not true, because our nationality Everything about us, by the way, not just our nationality, um, is is provided, belongs, uh, comes under the under divine providence. Right? God provides all of these things in order to uh, to help us be saved, right? For the sake of our salvation, He in in His providence arranges for what family we're going to be born into, who our parents are, who our ancestors are. Um, who our neighbors will be, right? Of course, obviously, this is all um, also people making their own decisions, right? But at the same time, God foresees and, for, and provides. Um, so the nation belongs to providence in the same way that your family belongs to divine providence. It's God provided for you to be born in a particular context among a certain group of people, your immediate family, your extended family, your neighbors, so on and so forth. In order for you to be saved. And how are you saved to these people? You're saved 
by the commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself. Right? To love your neighbor as yourself. And also to honor your father and your mother. Right? Those are commandments in the Old Testament that are not abrogated by the New Testament. In fact, they're intensified by the New Testament. Um, and so this is what nationhood is. Right? It's this bond between people who share the same language, the same customs, and the same faith. All the uh, uh, Orthodox ethnic groups are bound together by orthodoxy. Right? There are, there, you know, with the Greeks or whatever and other ethnic groups, there are other historical influences that come over time. But it's orthodoxy that, that in our current state, and in fact, for, for many of the Orthodox nations, for at least a thousand or two thousand years, that's been the glue, that's been the, the bond. By the way, the word religion in Latin, religio, means bond. It's a bond that binds people together. Um, Without orthodoxy, nothing that we do makes sense. Um, of course, it's also true. We live in the new world, and God provided for us to be born in the new world. And so, you know, there are other people who are not Greek or Serbian or Bulgarian or Romanian that, that are our neighbors, and we're, we're called to, li- to love them as ourselves too, which is why we give our life for this country, for the United States, for Canada, if we're called to. Um, if we're called to, right, we are obligated morally to die for the United States. If it's under attack, we have to defend it. Or if you're a Canadian, for Canada. And hopefully Canada and the United States will not fight wars, so we won't <laughs> with each other. That's the least likely scenario uh, uh, in, uh, in, in world history, at least in world politics right now. But um, the point is that and so how do we serve our neighbor in, in America? Well, we have to bring them orthodoxy. We have to speak the truth. We have to be an example. We have to acquire virtue to get back to St. Nectarios. So St. Nectarios is, is talking to, his, to these students because they, they are the next generation for, this, for the orthodox ethnos of the Greeks. And he would say the same thing to anywhere, anyone else in any other orthodox context, Russians, Romanians or whatever, um, that it is the youth and the extent to which they acquire virtue that determines the future of these nations. And if these nations are suffering today, which they all are in multiple ways, not just because of, you know, in Greece, the debt crisis or the coronavirus or the Turks, there are other forms of suffering that, the, that all Orthodox Christians, the one thing that um, is common to a lot of Orthodox societies is, is um, self-loathing. And it's, it's very sad. Um, Samuel, Samuel Huntington, who, is, who was a professor at Harvard, wrote a book, Class of Civilizations. And he said, well, the world is divided up into civilizations. Right? Western civilization, Muslim civilization, Orthodox civilization, and there are a, bunch, a couple other. And um, he said that the Orthodox are the only civilization that as a civilization wants to abandon civilization and join another civilization, join Western civilization. Every single Orthodox country is obsessed with this and has been obsessed with this since the 1700s, right? And this is in large part the source of many of our problems. Of course, the source of, the, the ultimate source of problems is lack of faith 
um, and, and, and the failure to acquire virtue. Of course, there are many virtuous peoples, people in, many, in, in all nations, but on the aggregate, how many people are attaining virtue? That number is dwindling. It's becoming smaller and smaller over time. But the acquisition of virtue is the essence of um, personal salvation, but also it, it's, it determines the, the, the path of nations. So uh, I want to skip ahead to um, section 11, where St. Nectarios um, says, having already seen, oh, the last thing he says is we have an obligation to continue our, to, to take what we inherit from our forefathers and pass it down to our successors. That is a moral obligation. That is a duty. That's, that's at the core of how the youth should understand themselves in an Orthodox country. Um, the faith, of course, we, we acquire the faith and then from our, from our ancestors, from our parents, and then we transmit the faith. Our primary obligation is to transmit the faith to our children, right? And then also to our neighbors, if they're not Orthodox and so on and so forth. But our, the primary obligation of, of every mother and father, and St. Nectarius, of course, as, we read, as you read from in other essays, right, the, the focus here is the education for the sake of motherhood. In this essay, we can say is education for the sake of fatherhood, right? Um, the, the obligation, primary obligation of a father and a mother is to transmit orthodoxy to their children so that the children can acquire virtues, the, the, the virtues. And then of course, save their souls and save the souls of the people around them. By the way, that's the, that's the point of an Orthodox nation is for uh, the souls of the members of that nation to be saved, right? And, and as St. Nectarius will point out in a slightly different context, that's exactly how you also, if you're working towards your eternal salvation, there are also temporal benefits that come along with that. You become serious, right? And, you, and, and, and you, you treat others well. You're just. You have a just society, right? You're a hard worker because you don't, you don't turn away from struggle. It takes, it, it takes a tremendous amount of struggle to transmit these values, the faith and the values, and the entire civilization of Orthodox Christianity. Because Orthodox Christianity is not just a set of ideas, it's not just a set of ideas. It's not an ideology. It's a lived faith. And so it's an entire life. Thus, it's an entire way of organizing your life, your household, and your polis, your city, your polity. Um, and so all that has to be transmitted. And so in section 11, he says, having already seen who these young people ought to be, both for their own good and so that they might prove ready for civil service, I think civil service might be too tight of a translation here. Maybe a broader translation is in order. Maybe service to the nation, service to the, to the polity. Uh, I'd have to look at the original text to see, but I, I, I suspect it's something along those lines. Let us now examine how and with what action those now anointed ones are to unswervingly tread the path of virtue, demonstrate love for it, and eventually be crowned on its account. Um, St. Nectarios, after this, goes in a long discussion about 
knowledge and justice and piety, self-knowledge and, and, and uh, also scientific knowledge. And along the way, he quotes many of the ancient Greek philosophers. Thales of Miletos is uh, one of the seven, seven sages, the oracle at Delphi. Of course, the oracle itself is not something that we subscribe to as Orthodox Christians because, of course, it was, if it, it functioned the way that it was described in the text, it must have been a demonic, really a demonic um, phenomenon. However, um, the oracle here at Delphi uh, did have, a, there were a number of inscriptions in the Temple of Apollo that pointed in the right direction. One of them is the idea that to know thyself is the height and pinnacle of true knowledge, which is, well, it is a high level of knowledge. It might not be the pinnacle, but it is a high level of true knowledge. Um, so why does St. Nectarios bother us with quoting the ancient Greeks? Is it just because he's Greek? No, it's not just because he's Greek, um, because that's never a good reason to do anything. Um, St. Nectarios, is, and he's going to talk about this more in subsequent essays, is part of a long tradition. It's part of a long tradition that started with the apostolic fathers who looked at the ancient Greek and the ancient Roman traditions as parallel to the tradition of the Israelites. So the tradition of the Israelites, what is it? The whole history of the Old Testament is a preparation for the coming of God in the flesh. The whole thing is a preparation. The reason why we, name, we read all the generations, right, and the kings, the, the, the sons and the, queen, the, the queens, and the kings and the queens and their sons of Israel, and the reason why it, that's even in the Gospels, is because that entire history is a preparation, one generation after another, preparing for the birth of the Theotokos, and then the birth of Christ. The whole history, it's all in preparation. And then all the rituals of the temple spiritually prepared the way for the coming, for the birth of the Theotokos, according to St. Gregory Palamas. And then, of course, more important, well, even greater than that, of course, the Theotokos is important, but even greater than her birth is the birth of Christ himself. The, the word of God in the flesh. The whole thing was a preparation for the incarnation. Outside of Israel, among the Greeks and the Romans, and in particular the Greeks, their history, according to the Apostolic Fathers, was a preparation for the gospel. A preparation for the gospel. So in, in, a, fragmented, in a fragmented way, um, the ancient Greeks were given flashes of truth about the gospel. The ancient Greeks, either through perfecting their human rational capacity and thinking through things, they have a tradition of rationalism and thinking through questions, thinking about nature, right? Or because, and many of the fathers talk about this, God in his providence revealed, not in the way that he revealed things to the, to the prophets, but in indirect ways, revealed things to the ancient Greeks, so that in order to prepare, and the Romans uh, later, in order to prepare the way, to prepare the ground for the gospel. And um, 
this preparation is called the spermaticos logos or the 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 the, the logos in seed the seedling the seedling or the the seeding um word the the, the that truth was the greek and roman civilizations were seeded by god with these little fragments of the truth and thus christianity and christian civilization is the summation of all that is good um, in ancient Greek and Roman civilization, right? This is one of the, this is a very consistent position, especially that the Apostolic Fathers took and the Apologists took in the first three centuries of church history. Because remember, at that time, they were under attack by the Romans and the Greeks uh, and the Roman authorities, and they were being persecuted. And so, a, a writer such as St. Justin explained, well, we're not seditious. We're not actually anything bad. Our faith brings together all the best aspects of your civilization. It's the fulfillment of your civilization. So St. Nectarios is, uh, um, is part of this tradition that saw the ancient, ancient Greek civilization not as perfect, as flawed, but having these the, and he's going to talk about some of the flawed people in that, in that intellectual tradition later on, but having these fragments of the truth um, that, that then the apostles were able to use to explain the gospel, like St. Paul, who went to Athens, and he was immediately was able to, and he spoke to the Areopagus Council, he was immediately able to say, well, I see that you are very pious, you have this temple to this unknown God, I will now talk to you about this unknown God. I will reveal, make known to you the unknown God. And that's literally true. He wasn't just, it wasn't just a rhetorical move that he was, make, he was making. That was literally true because the God that St. Paul was talking about was previously, is unknowable in his essence and is only known through his revelation, self-revelation. Um, so, um, so this is why St. Ectarios goes to the ancient. St. Basil had written uh, an essay in the 4th century, a uh, letter to the youth about how to read ancient Greek literature. And St. Ectarios is following that essay, the, the guidelines of how to read ancient Greek literature, where to take the best, the most useful, the most profitable quotes and ideas that the ancient Greeks held and then we're to throw away everything else, all the impious things, all the wrong ideas. Right? He quotes Plato. Plato has many good ideas. He also has many bad ideas that the, that the father has rejected. Right? The idea of the transmigration of souls, for example, which is reincarnation. Uh, that's something. Or the pre-existence of the soul before the body. Those are ideas that Plato held to that the, the Holy Father has rejected. Or the eternity of matter. He also said that. That's wrong. But he had other ideas. The fact that we, are, we have a soul, right? And that reality is not limited to what's visible. And that perhaps the highest form of knowledge is the, the knowledge of that inv invisible reality. That's all very important in the, in the preparation in, uh, for the gospel that happened centuries before our Lord was born. So getting back to St. Ectarios, he, um, he quotes Thalys of Miletos, to know thyself was the beginning of every virtue. We need to know ourselves in order to become virtuous. 
because this knowledge would guide us, will guide us towards virtue. Right? And so what does he mean by knowing, thy, knowing thyself? Um, first and foremost, it means understanding human nature, knowing what we are. Right? That we're rational and noetic and we're free and thus as a consequence we must be religious and social and moral that we're open to the divine mind by which he means we're open to divine revelation we have the capacity to receive divine revelations we can't discover things about god in an unaided way like we can discover things about nature in an unaided way we can do experiments we don't have we don't need an angel to show us things about about physics or chemistry that's unaided we can't discover anything about god in the same way through experimentation or through deductive logic or through inductive logic we can't we can only get we we hit a barrier after which we can't go the at the that, that barrier is the boundary between the uncreated and the created the the we are created we're creatures and then everything that's that God is, God is uncreated and we can't penetrate that with our minds. But we have the capacity to receive messages from the uncreated, from God, who manifests himself, manifested himself in the flesh. He became us, one of us. And, and at the same time, though, he can illumine us. Um, and, and so um, that's what opened to the divine mind. But if you, if you know the Father's, being open to the divine mind is also akin to self-knowledge because God reveals himself inwardly inside us. Um, and even the visions that the saints had, like, like let's say St. Simeon, the new theologian, that vision was, was an inward vision that that transfigured the body of the saint and the space that the saint was in. Um, right? And then spiritually immortal, that we're rational, noetic, free, that we have the capacity to, to receive divine revelation, and that we are spiritually immortal, meaning that our, our, our soul doesn't die with the body. Uh, and as a consequence of this, that we are to be religious and social and moral. So, this is important. Being religious is not just something extra about us. Being religious is not just about feeling good about yourself. Being religious is not just about following some arbitrary set of rules and, 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 and constraints. Religiosity, piety in other words, corresponds to our nature. If we're not religious, we're not functioning as human beings properly. If we're impious, if we're pious, we're functioning according to our nature. Right? Everything is working the way it's supposed to work. Similarly, being social, being part of a community, being in communion with other people, communicating with other people. Right? We, that, that's a big deal because we have language. Other animals don't have language. Right? And the, the purpose of language is for us, one of the purposes is to communicate, to form communities. That's part of our nature. The individualist is not functioning according to his nature. He's functioning below the dignity of the human nature. There's something not right about that. There's something off. Uh, and 
you know, you, we could psychologize about that and, and um, psychoanalyze such people. But the point is, individualism does not correspond to human nature. Morality, morality and ethics, right? That's, of course, connected to doing what is good. And doing what is good is, um, and, and freely doing what is good, those are connected to our nature. So Sinectario starts with this self-knowledge with understanding human nature and then seeing what comes out of that. What, what is the, the result of this understanding of what, what human nature is? He, um, man knows that he is rational, means that it falls to him to think correctly, to pass judgment, and to draw conclusions. We're not irrational. There are many people today, Orthodox Christians, that think that reason is something that we have to put aside when we are uh, thinking about when, when, when we're you know, in the context of our spirituality and our, and our faith. That reason is something that we have to put aside, that, that um, that logic is a stumbling block, and th this is wrong. Reason is a methodology, and the in the method it's a process of thinking. And everything depends on your starting point. So if your starting point is off, your whole th line of thinking is going to be off. You could be rational and consistent the whole way through but you're going to end in some kind of wrong conclusion because your starting point was off so the point about reason is that we don't abandon reason when we're when we're when we have faith but we put reason in its place and if we think about this anthropologically reason belongs to the middle part of the soul the higher part of the soul the part that has the capacity to receive divine revelations, that's the part that belongs to faith, right? And so faith uh, um, comes before reason, but it doesn't obliterate reason. None of the doctrines that we believe in are irrational or contradict reason in any way, right? We, our reason couldn't have discovered those things in an unaided way, right? Um, but but nothing that the Orthodox Church asks us to do is unreasonable or irrational. Everything corresponds to our nature, uh, right? So the whole question is where reason is put. And even with obedience, monastic obedience, right? Monastic obedience, this is where many people, they, they talk about give up your reason. The monk does not give up his reason in the sense that he becomes completely irrational and unreasonable and dumb. Right, the monk submits his reason, and he's never told to do something that's unreasonable. There are always reasons for what's happening. In fact, we might say that monastics live the most rational life of all human beings. There are reasons for everything they do. Right, and the starting points are correct. So, what does the monk do? The monk gets his starting point from his uh, from his spiritual father. Right, and the spiritual father gets the starting point from the Holy Fathers. The Holy Fathers, of course, have 
received divine revelation to tell us this path, right? But nothing that a monk does is, is unreasonable or irrational or illogical. It's not about throwing reason out. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? It's about putting reason in its place. So faith and reason uh, are not mutually exclusive, right? Faith is prior to reason in a similar way that intuition is prior to reason. Uh, but that's, that's another discussion. Um, so we think correctly. We pass judgment to draw conclusions. A man knows that he has free will to do and act in accordance with the demands of the spirit. Right? Free will means not the freedom to sin, but the freedom to do what the spirit demands, right? what our soul requires. He is noetic to ensure that provision is made for the spirit. Right? The noetic is the, the spiritual part of the soul, is the immaterial part of the soul. Uh, the immaterial nature of the soul, rather, is, is noetic. He is religious, that he is religious teaches him to fear God, that he is social to support the community, that he is moral to keep the divine and human laws, that he is free to keep himself from slavery, the slavery from the, to the passions, that he is open to the divine mind to seek after divine illumination. Um, and divine illumination is something that God wants to give us. And we just have to become ready for it. We don't seek it in the sense that we want to have these, exper these experiences, right? In the sense that we just want to, out of curiosity or out of pride. That's not what he means by seeking divine illumination. It means preparing ourselves to receive divine illumination, the illumination that God wants to give us at the time that God wants to give, us, give it to us in the way that he wants to give it to us in, in the, the, the degree that he wants to give it to us. God has gifts and he wants to give them. We don't receive those gifts because we're not ready. Mm. Because they would destroy us if, if, if we received them in, in a, in a, at a time when we weren't ready. Right? Um, and, so, and so there are many people that, that do seek illumination in this fallen way. Um, they seek illumination for the sake of their pride or for out of curiosity because they want to have these experiences. They want to escape reality. Divine illumination is not the escape from reality. It's the ultimate reality. It's the truth about everything. Right? And the saints, when they, when they received divine illumination, they didn't escape reality. They saw reality as it was. They became even, they, they attained an even higher degree of knowledge and intimacy with reality. They didn't escape their own problems. They saw their problems more clearly. Um, that he is spiritually immortal to keep the spirit pure and undefiled, that is to live in accordance with its nature. Um, so he who knows himself knows his duties toward himself, his duties toward God, and his duties toward his neighbor. Mm -hmm. And then, so St. Uh, Nectarios then lists uh, the, the virtues that, this, that, that, that these knowledge of these duties uh, corresponds to. Piety, right? Piety is knowing your duties towards God. Justice, knowing your duties toward your neighbor. Um, and then truth and knowledge. Um, and then the rest of the essay, he, uh, or for the next part of the essay, he discusses each one of these in turn. 
Um, piety, justice, truth, and knowledge, those four yes. things? Yes. Yes. Uh, piety, justice, truth, and knowledge. And piety and justice... Did you hear me? Yes, I can hear. Um, piety and justice are closely related ideas. Um, in particular because um, piety and justice have to do with the way that we relate and what we... How, how we fulfill our duties towards others. Um, piety is towards God, but justice, of course, means giving to each what, what is due to them. Giving to each what is their due in due proportion. Right? Uh, justice is not equality, by the way. This is being said right now in the streets of many cities. Justice is not... Actually, they're not even saying that anymore. This, was, this is passe now, that justice is equality. Now they're talking about equity. In equity means you could take more from someone to give to someone else and leave the original owner bereft. So then they're not equal. There's an, a new inequality that's created. But justice is not equality. Justice is giving to each what is their due in due proportion. Um, it means um, sometimes not doing things equally. Right? You wouldn't give equal authority to the prison guard and to the prisoner. Right? That's not just, right? Um, you wouldn't treat a criminal and a law-abiding citizen in, the, in an equal manner. That's not justice either, right? Um, so th that, that illustrates the point. But it's having the right relationship, right, with, with your neighbor, right? And fulfilling those the obligations that that relationship places on you. Um, so in section 15, it says, let's examine... Each of these virtues now one by one, pointing out their power, worth and power. Um, Job calls godliness wisdom. Godliness here is a synonym for piety. Um, and he quotes Job. Uh, sorry, he quotes Saint, uh, the Holy Prophet David. His word is true and all his works are in faithfulness. This is from Psalm 32. Piety towards God is the beginning of discernment. Proverbs 1.7 The way of the godly of the pious is made straight. The way of the godly of the pious is also prepared. The, gaius, the, the godly, rather, that means the pious. The godly have devised wise measures and this counsel shall stand. And then he quotes Sirach, who's not in the King James Bible because King James Bible is, is, this, is translating the Masoretic Hebrew text and Sirach was not in that text, but it, he, the book of Sirach, wisdom of Sirach, is in the Septuagint, because at the time of our Lord, it was read as scripture by the Israelites. Later, the Israelites dropped it out. The, the Jews dropped, dropped that book from their canon. But Sirach says that piety is more powerful than anything else. Godliness, that is piety, is an unfailing treasure. The discourse of a godly man is always with wisdom. And then St. Paul says, Exercise yourself toward godliness, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So it has two dimensions, piety, this life and the next life. Then he quotes also St. Gregory the Wonder Worker, and then Aristotle. The beginning of all living beings is God, and of all the virtues is piety right so 
this is the measure of piety. This is such, such as it's worth. Um, then he moves on to, well, let's think about what Aristotle just said in relation to the, to the above. So just like the cause of all things is God, um, right? For Aristotle, God is the, the unmoved mover the first cause of all things. Aristotle thought that um, by examining cause and effect relationships, we could go all the way back and discover the original cause. He was almost right because we can go back and understand if you follow all the cause and effect relationships in the, in, in the universe, we will come close to the first cause, to the prior, to the unmoved mover. Um, but we won't know exactly who he is. We'll have some of his qualities. We'll understand some of his qualities. That he's unmoved. That he's eternal. Right? That he's wise, all good. So on and so forth. But that's as far as we can go with our reason unaided. Nonetheless, through his reason, he, he reasoned that uh, all existence comes from this first cause. In the same way, in ethics, all virtues start with piety right because piety of course is our obligation towards this god and thus in in in, in by analogy or by in parallel every other virtue is begotten from this uh special relationship that we establish with our creator um then he talks about uh justice That justice is the basis of our duty towards our neighbor and the rule by which we ought to measure our interactions with them. Where justice is lacking, love is lacking. Where love is lacking, not a single virtue is able to grow. Okay, so this is something that's missing from our current discussions. Um, you know, today with all, all the uh, upheaval about race, at least in the United States. And I'm sure the Canadians are watching this and, um, and, and, uh, and certainly other people in the world are watching as well. And, and uh, uh, people want social justice. What is social justice? Well, social justice is not the establishment of an equal regime. Um, well, on the one hand, they want not just equality of opportunity, but also equality of outcome for everyone, which of course is impossible to deliver. And so it's, it's, a, it's a dream that can never be fulfilled, thus a delusion. Um, on the other hand, they want social equity, which is um, to, uh, not to establish an equal situation. So that there's actually a contradiction, equality of outcome, and then there's equity, which is um, deprive some people of more. Um, deprive, for example, the rich of a large part of their wealth and redistribute that to the poor. Right? Um, in a way that leaves perhaps the rich less wealthy than the poor. Right? That's the imbalance of equity. Equity is not one for one, but it could be ten for one. Um, this, of course, all of this, whenever equality gets involved and equity, which is its evil twin, um, 
you always have a recipe for uh, strife, for continual conflict, right? Today, people think that hierarchy is something that's bad. It's, it's a method of oppression and, 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 and repressing people, right? Uh, and that equality and equity are, are more humane. But in fact, hierarchy is a, is a system that coheres it's a structure that coheres, right? And whereas equity and equality is, resists any type of coherence, sorry, any type of cohesion, right? Uh, equity and equality always cause conflicts. There's always competition. Um, either you're competing for resources or you're competing for power, but equity and equality always lead to conflict. Um, and people believe that this is the, the essence of, of justice. But what St. Nectario says here is something we have to take very seriously. That justice, where justice is lacking, love is lacking. Right? The problem is a problem of love. Our problem today is a problem of love. No social justice can provide love. No program of social justice can, can, can provide love. And by love, of course, we mean agapi, caritas. In Latin, agapi in Greek, uh, which is selfless love, loving your neighbor as yourself. Right, loving your neighbor as yourself is what um, justice um, uh, requires. Uh, is what justice actually brings about. Right, where justice is lacking, love is lacking. When we don't know, or where we neglect our duties toward our neighbor. We cannot love. We cannot progress spiritually. We cannot progress as a society. In fact, we'll probably fall apart as a society um, when this happens. And so really, what's happening in our society is a lack of love and a confusion about what our duties are towards our neighbors, towards our neighbor, and towards our neighbors in general, our real, uh, actual physical neighbors, but a confusion of what our duties are towards our neighbor. Um, we don't know how to interact with them anymore, with our neighbor. Um, so this is why we must read what the fathers say and what the saints say, because they, they, they zero us in on what exactly we should be doing. And, and they provide the solutions for us uh, uh, for many things, spiritual problems and social problems. Um, so justice is in many ways, the charitable, according to St. Nectarios, is, is interacting with our neighbor in a spirit of charity, in a spirit of agapi, Christian love, in a spirit of loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Um, which means not despising yourself either, because that's the other part that's happening today. The mass media are telling entire sections of, of our society to despise themselves, Right? So this is the, another internal contradiction with the social justice movement. In particular, they're telling people of European descent to despise themselves. Well, if they despise themselves, how can they love the African-Americans? How can they love the people of African descent if they can't love themselves? Or you love yourself in order to love others, right? The selfish person only loves himself, right? The, um, the prideful person hates himself, 
because he never measures up to his own standards out of his, because of his vanity. He claims to love others, but because he can't love himself, he can't love others either. Right? But the Orthodox Christian, the saint, loves himself as the icon, as the image of God, and loves his neighbor as the icon and image of God. And in loving yourself and your neighbor, you're also loving, you're ultimately loving God. Right? The three are connected. Um, next, Nicktire talks about truth. Truth is necessary for the, for the virtuous life. And he has a lot of good things to say about truth. That, um, that it's worth considering here. Truth and knowledge. Right? Um, truth perfects man. So our, um, we're made in the image and likeness of God. We're, we're, we're supposed to understand the truth about ourselves. Hold on. There's someone spying on us right now. Um, a certain little person. Uh, so we're, we're created for truth. Our mind, our language is all created for truth. It's created for knowledge. God creates the world. God creates the world in order for the world to be known to us. Someone might say, for the world to come to self-knowledge, to the, ex- to the extent that we are the highest expression of, created, of, of, of creation. We are the highest physical creature, the human, human beings. Um, of course, there are the angels who are bodiless. But they too are the audience for whom God creates. God creates the world out of love for these rational beings, humans and angels, so that they can know what he creates. And so our knowledge of the truth about the world is directly connected to God's nature as the creator of the world. We can't create, but we can know and we can name. What did Adam do in the uh, Garden of Eden? First thing he did uh, after, um, after he came to consciousness, he went around and named all of the plants and animals and the things that he saw. That process of giving names, if I'm not, if I'm not wrong, I think this happens even before Eve is created. So the purpose wasn't for him to communicate though necessarily um, those, those names to someone else. But rather, it was to know them because our language is the mechanism by which we come to know things. Our words correspond to essences. Right? Um, and so, um, this is why knowledge shows man to be the loftiest of all creatures, teaching him both things human, divine and human. And the highest form of knowledge, according to St. Basil, is the knowledge of divine and human matters and their causes. Right? Naming things and working back to the causes. All causes, the whole universe, is a chain of causes and effects that all like a, like a massive pyramid lead back to one point, and that is to God. Right? Um, don't read too much into the pyramid analogy. That's just an analogy. <laughs> could get, people can get out of hand. They can get out of hand with some people. Um, but the point is, all causes, all uh, causes, causes and effects go back to the original cause. Okay. Um, later on, um, 
St. Nectarios talks about the uh, atomists and the atheists and the relativists. All right, we need, we need an in intervention. Okay. Um, right. Uh, so, um, knowledge, of course, is also knowledge of the self and knowledge of the world. He's not against science in any way. Um, and we all, I don't want to go on for too long here because um, I want some time for questions and answers. It's almost uh, 8.30 Central, 9.30 uh, Eastern. Um, but I do want to jump down to um, page 39, um, where St. Nectarios talks about the command to know thyself. So he's gone through knowing what we are as human beings. Um, now he's going knowledge of the re, of the self of the individual. The command to know thyself. <laughs> yes. The command to know thyself proves most necessary. For he who knows himself is never puffed up, is never high-minded. First and foremost, knows his shortcomings and his evil habits even comparing himself with the ideal prototype to which he ought to conform. Since this shows him to what extent he is found lacking. Right? Everyone, this is Simeona in the background. Um, yes, Simeona. So this is the, the second part of know thyself. Knowing your own heart. Of course, each human being is, is a mystery, right? The saints say that the human being is the macrocosm that lives in the microcosm. The ancient Greeks said the reverse. The ancient Greeks said that the human being is the microcosm of the, macro, of the cosmos, the human being is the, is the small summary of the whole universe. That's the ancient Greek position. But the patristic position is the opposite. That the whole universe is a small summary of a human being. Right? Think about that. The universe is nearly, it's not infinite, it's nearly infinite. It's massive. Infinite, at least from our perspective, that we can't see its beginning or its end though it's not infinite because it's created, right? Um, all of that is a small summary of the, of the large universe inside of us. That's, that's the, the depth of the human soul. So we have this physical universe that contains billions of universes that are even bigger than it, inwardly. Bigger than it, not necessarily in terms of space, but in terms of potential, in terms of capacity, in terms of depth, intellectual depth, psychological depth, uh, only God knows our soul, our heart, with precision. But each human being, if, they, if he wants to progress in the virtues, must come to a clear-sighted knowledge of himself. We have to know our habits. We have to know our evil habits, our short 
shortcomings and know how we compare to our prototype who is Christ. Right? Without this self-knowledge, no spiritual progress is possible. Right? So if we know what, also what our nature is, comparing ourselves to our nature, if we know what our nature is, we have to then know, dig deeply inside and, and see who we are. And the Holy Fathers talk about the, the mind entering into the heart. The mind entering into the heart, there it sees what, our, what the passions are. It sees the demonic energies. It sees the thoughts that come from the demons. And it combats them there through the invocation of the name of Christ. Uh, that's the method that St. Saint Gregory Palamas and the Hesychast fathers uh, defended. Um, but ultimately what they were defending is self-knowledge. Self-knowledge combined with prayer. Uh, knowledge deprived of self-knowledge and therefore, knowledge without godliness, piety, justice, and truth, which teaches, uh, teaches things divine and human and their causes, um, is only partial knowledge. It lacks the most necessary building block of education. It leads to the denial of God and of his general relationship to the world and to, and to man himself. All knowledge cut off from rectitude correctness and the rest of virtue has the look of low cunning and not wisdom so knowledge that is um, without in other words just plain scientific knowledge without any self-knowledge on the part of the human being who possesses this science or this skill right is not wisdom it's cunning right uh, cunning is just knowing some techniques to trick people, right? Knowing some, some techniques to get your, your will, um, uh, for, for your will to be done. That's what cunning is. Wisdom, though, is higher than that. It transcends that. Um, without prudence, in the remaining course of virtues, the muses, that is education, he's just speaking poetically here, prove neither wise nor truly learned, nor good citizens, nor are they ready to be sound members of society. On page 41, he goes through all these ancient Greeks that made serious mistakes uh, in their philosophies. Um, atheism, right? The Agoras of Milos. Democritus of Abdera. Materialism that the, principles, uh, the principle of, of things lies in matter, not beyond matter. Um, uh, Aristopos of Kirini um, says that pleasure is the most fitting end of man. Theodoros of Kirini uh, was a teacher of atheism and licentiousness. Pyro uh, taught skepticism. They were Tyro and Timon were teachers of inquiry and suspension of judgment. That's what skepticism is. Skepticism is, I don't know enough to draw this conclusion yet. That's skepticism. Not, I don't believe you. What you're saying is not true. The skeptic can't say that. Skeptic is stuck there. 
cannot make the final, the final uh, step from reason to a conclusion because they they don't trust their own knowledge. But Pyro and Timon, um, they were teachers of inquiry and suspension of justice. They were wise, but they distorted the truth through contradiction. Through contradiction, uh, instead of an argument which moves forward, right? tries to move from first principles to particulars, right? They were just contradicting everyone. They were deconstructing. That's today is a big thing, deconstruction, right? They weren't moving forward. They're just destroying other people's arguments. So that's, that's false. Um, it doesn't get you anywhere. You're, you're just going in circles. Epicurus, uh, uh, Epicurus was a teacher of licentiousness, asserting that pleasure is happiness. Then you have the sophists, Protagoras, Gorgias, so on and so forth, all the way down to Polos, um, all esteemed for their manner of speech and skillful in dialectic, which is reason when you're debating people. It's the ability to debate. That's dialectic. But they perverted the truth and shipped at the foundation of morality, religion, and faith, and little by little managed to completely overturn the very spiritual convictions of the world and the principles of society and put an end to moral virtue, saying that everything is a lie. That it is all a fantasy, that every position is deceived, that everything that has come to be from non-existence is produced that everything that suffers corruption deteriorates into non-being and that man is the measure of all things. Things are for each person as he believes them to be and each individual's impressions are positively true. Those are quotes. Um, the, the, the people that I just mentioned, Protagoras, Gorgias, Ephidimus, Xeniadis, Thrasimachos, Caliclis, Ipias, Protikos, Polos, they're all sophists. So we get sophistry. Um, they did a whole bunch of things that they said a whole bunch of things that are problematic. But two things that they said that are the most problematic of all: that man is the measure of all things, which then leads to the next statement: that things are for each person as he believes them to be. Right? These are the essence of rel These are the founding principles of relativism. Right? Man is the measure of all things means that. Uh, there's no standard higher than that I have to conform to higher than the one that I make for myself or in the best case scenario, higher than the, the standard that my, that my society play, creates for me. Right. Um, and that all these rules and virtues and so on and so forth are, are human in the sense that they're created and conceived by human beings. Um, and if that's true, then the next statement is true as well. Things are for each person as he believes them to be. It, you know, it doesn't matter. Who knows? I mean, the moon could be, you know, whatever anyone wants it to be, right? The sun is whatever anyone wants it to be. The, the solar system is, doesn't matter if, what position you take, heliocentric or geocentric. It doesn't matter. Those are extreme examples. But uh, relativism infects our entire society today. Um, right? What, what do you hear when, you, when you're defending the truth? Well, who's to say that's true? Well, the person, people that usually say that, um, who's to say that there is any truth? That's what they actually mean. Um, that whatever I say is the truth. My perspective 
is more important than anyone, any other perspective, more important than the absolute truth. We see that in the news media. The news media are completely obsessed with the narrative. The narrative is, is, is something other than a description of reality for them. The narrative is an agenda. The narrative is the, the, the reality as they perceive it to be. And that truth only exists within the parameters of that, of that reality. This is pure delusion, right? This is pure delusion because the truth is independent of any human being. Um, and then St. Nectarius discusses how these positions destroy societies and produce delusions. And delusion, of course, the Greek word for delusion is plani. Plani is a wandering. That's why we say planets. The planets wander through the solar system, right? Planetes. Um, they wander. But of course, they wander on a track that's preset to them. Someone who is in plani wanders out into danger, into darkness, right? Wandering in the desert, away from the path that leads to salvation. Someone's going to die, spiritually, certainly. Delusion is, is, is a type of spiritual death or leads to spiritual death. Um, therefore, um, so St. Nectarius then goes on to say things, he, he critiques these two statements, things are for each person as he believes them to be and each individual's impressions are positively true. Um, he, he quotes Socrates. Um, this quote is from the Cratylus. It's actually, he's actually quoting Plato. It is clear, according to Plato, that things have fixed being or essence of their own. That they are not in relation to us and are not made to fluctuate by how they appear to us. They are by themselves in relation to their own being or essence, which is theirs by nature. Okay, so then the saint says, therefore, the being of things is not determined by their relation to us. Neither are they made to change by us, but rather they possess that essence which is proper to them. Man is not the measure, therefore, but rather the universal man. What is true is not what each thinks, but rather what is positively true is what is confessed universally. That is truth common to all. So two things about this. One, um, knowing yourself, knowing your nature, if I can connect it back to that, also knows that I didn't create anything around me. It exists independently of me. So I put myself in my, I, I put myself in, in, in my proper place. It's given to me, in fact. It's given to me from God, right, who creates it. Uh, and it's also given to me by, well, my ancestors, right? But in particular, ultimately from God. And secondly, he talks here about universal man, that is later on humanity, he defines it, as, as um, what is true is what is confessed universally because reality is obvious, right? What is true is truth that's common to all. Truth has the power to unite people. This is why in the liturgy we recite the creed because we are united in the one faith, right? Other types of truth, scientific truth also has a way and hospitals are entire institutions that are united by scientific truth. 
right? Medical truth. Truth unites. However, relativism separates. It doesn't allow for cooperation. It fragments unit, uh, humanity's unity. Truth is recognized by everyone because it's objective. That's what, that's what we mean by objective. Um, re relativism is something that only an individual can experience, right? Because it's completely subjective to your own perspective. And thus it fragments. Um, so the last thing I'm going to say here about Senectarios is uh, I'm going to just paragraph 31 where he says, it is therefore needful, beloved children of the Lord, that you become lovers of the wisdom of true science, which teaches you about yourselves, about who you are, about who God is, which acquaints you with the things divine and things human as these are in themselves, which surely leads to the straight and well-trodden path of piety, justice, and truth. Without a formation, according to virtue, piety, and knowledge, all man, man's lofty calling is unattainable. Right? So, um, yes, it is nothing, sorry, it is necessary in that nothing is more needful when it comes to, this, to his conducting himself as his meat, wisdom, in other words. Um, let me read that again. According to St. Isidore Pilustiotis, is, um, virtue is necessary, beneficial, beautiful, proper, profitable, and useful currency. It is necessary in that nothing is more needful when it comes to his conducting himself as his meat. It is beneficial in that it leads them to eternity. It is beautiful in that it renders majestic those who possess it. It is vert proper in that it adorns him who acquires it. It is profitable in that its end resolves troubles. It is useful in that nothing is more functional than it, than virtue, right? So, um, so here we have these concentric circles, right? The lovers of wisdom and true science and the acquisition of virtue, all in the service of um, of loving your neighbor um, and uh, preserving orthodox civilization. All right, so it's 9.47 here in my end of the country. And any questions? One thing that I thought about when you were speaking about the orthodox civilization, it's pretty, it's, it's very interesting to think that Mohammedans have all of their traditional practices from the long past, not only in their religion, but in their culture. And they're so unapologetic about it. Rather, they're so, uh, they're so straight with it, even when they live in the West, even though they do degrade and they do turn into Westerners, they still keep so much and they're able to, it's as if the devil has not, has not destroyed them in the West. They don't have to conform their practices and uh, they don't have to apologize for their, for their beliefs to the West. They're supported by governments, but us Orthodox have been destroyed by our own people. I mean, the Serbians destroyed themselves um, even within, I, I actually met the monarch of Serbia, the exiled monarch. Oh yeah. Wow. People are practicing against their own, their own traditions and their own faith. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting matter. And 
one thing I was going to ask you is, what do you think if we were able to ask Sanitarios, what would he say about our ethnos? I mean, us, like me and you and Maria being Greeks, of course. I mean, I think the acquisition of virtue for us would absolutely help Americans around us. But um, uh, it's interesting to think about how our acquisition of virtue, that calling would help our ethnos as Greeks too. I don't know what you would think about that. Well, um, the acquisition of virtue, of course, and is is the primary the the primary reason why we we attain virtue is for our salvation. But then there's this uh, consequence that, that comes from that. The consequence is that we help our neighbor, right? When we become virtuous. Um, and when we help our neighbor, we help our ethnos. And as, as Orthodox Christians who live in you know, the New World and whose families come from the Orthodox world, I think we, we are in a unique and uh, unprecedented situation in, in human history in that we have a moral obligation to the land that actually feeds us and that, 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 that provided for our physical life. And we also have a moral obligation to our ancestral land because without our ancestors, we wouldn't be here. Without Greece, for example, I wouldn't be here uh, because Greece was the land of my ancestors. That's where they lived. That's, they all, they all uh, contributed to me. At the same time, I, I live in the United States. I'm an American citizen. So I have an obligation here too. Usually... In, in normal situations, this is highly abnormal to have these two connections. In, in, in Historically speaking, in normal situations, we are in one place and we don't have to worry about the, you know, this multi-dimensional. Um, but we are who we are. we are. We live in the time where we live. God has provided for this, for our particular salvation. And for us to attain our salvation, we have to fulfill our obligations both to our physical neighbors here and our brethren in Greece or wherever we're from, whether it's Greece, Serbia, Romania, right? And we do that um, through our example. We do that through our, our deeds to the extent that we, in whatever profession we are, um, we excel in our profession. Uh, if you are a scholar, you provide scholarship that enlightens, it brings people to orthodoxy and enlightens your fellow uh, orthodox Christians to the, uh, the truth. We do it through exhortation. We do it through um, those who can move back, right? Um, there are many ways, but of course, we do it through our prayers, right? One of our obligations to our land is to pray for our land. For us, it means our Native, in my case, I was born in the United States, so my native land, but also my ancestral land uh, in Greece. We, and we have this obligation. Uh, we also have the obligation, uh, and, and, and also we, have, we belong to diaspora communities. As GOC, we have a special relation, uh, uh, obligation rather, to reach out to our brethren. We don't turn anyone away. We have a, an obligation to enlighten those who come to us because God sends people to the church. We don't go and grab people and drag them under their collar and bring them in. God brings people into the church, whoever they are. 
we have an obligation to accept them and to um, enlighten them, depending on what our calling is. If you're clergy, if you're not clergy, everyone has a different role. If you're clergy, you enlighten them with your words. If you're not clergy, you enlighten them through your example. But we also have a special obligation to our brethren. In many cases, it's literally true. Our brothers and sisters, our cousins, right, aunts and uncles, um, who are not pious, or who might be pious but might be in, in an ecumenist jurisdiction. We have an obligation to reach out to them. And if we can, we use our words. If we can't use our words, if we don't have that, that level of uh, you know, cultivation or, or uh, formation, then through our example. Um, certainly through our prayers. I don't know if I answered your question directly, but those are the ideas that came to my mind as you were, as you were um, laying it out. No, that really helps the thought. I appreciate it. That's good. Also to feel a sense of responsibility. So obligation, of course, means responsibility. Responsibility to the church. So Zeni Thalys is talking about, is talking to students who are going to take, make, they're going to make careers in, 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 um, you know, uh, professional, in professional life, or some of them are going to be actual civil servants. That's different. We're over here. We don't have that, but we have to take care of the church. We have to feel an obligation because when we, when, when we feel a responsibility for our church, our particular parish, but also the church in general, we are both serving God first and then also our fellow man, our neighbor. All right. And so we have to, we have to feel a, a special responsibility for that. Whatever the church needs, we need to step up. Actually, the, the thought came to my mind when Senatorio said that, you know, that the young men are going to be the inheritors of this nation. And yeah. for us, I think it's, it's really important to think that we're going to be the inheritors of all the rules of our church, you know. And I mean. And we're going to be responsible to take care of that. Yeah, we have to provide the funds for our temple. We have to clean it. We have to build it. And it's, it's important to think that our role of acquiring virtue puts all of those together of what our material world will be, I right. suppose. Yeah. Right. When you yep. obligate people. I'm sorry, uh, you were cut off. Can you say that again? When you spoke of our obligation to accept people. Yes. Um, and then you did speak a little bit about the divine liturgy. Is, is that, is there a connection there where we say, several times in the divine liturgy, the union of the people and the peace in the world. Now we know that we all can't be one the way the world is now. So is that, um, if you could explain? Yeah, so the deacon, uh, one of the petitions that the deacon says is um, for the un un union of all, there are various translations of all people, of all the faithful. Some of the translations that we use say of all the faithful. Um, Remember, the, the function of the divine liturgy is to unite. And so it unites us with God. It unites us with each other, with ourselves internally, with each other in the, in the congregation, and then with God. Um, and when we are connected to God, all of creation is connected to God. Because remember what I said, we're, not I, the, but the Holy Fathers, 
we are a macrocosm of the universe. The universe is, is, is a summary of us, or from the ancient Greek perspective, we are a small summary of the universe. The point is, we are representing the universe and bringing all creation into union with God in the divine liturgy. So on the one hand, it could be in the union of all the faithful, of everyone present as one body with one faith and one, in one spirit, right? But it also means the literal, the union of all things brought into God, in communion with God. And to that extent, also our, our missionary work to the non-Orthodox, but also to the um, fallen Orthodox, or maybe that's not the right term, but I think you know what I mean. To our Orthodox brethren um, is, is part of that work. It's part of bringing everyone into union, into the one body of everyone is called. There is not one person born in this world who is not called to union with God. Thus, through the, whole, through the Orthodox Church, everyone is. Um, and so when, when those people come to church, when God brings them to church, obviously we, we're, they become, and they're baptized and they commune, they're one body. They become part of our body. And we all become part of the body of Christ. Right? They become our body through the body of Christ because Christ's body becomes ours. Right? And our body becomes his when we commune. And then we're all one in the congregation. Um, it doesn't mean, though, what the ecumenists say, think it, it, it means, that we are to become one without one reference to one truth, without reference to, without one mind, not in one spirit, in a purely outward uh, sort of gluing together of multiple denominations for political reasons. That's not what, that's not the unity that the liturgy works towards. It's not the unity that, that the petition is talking about. Certainly not the unity that our Lord's talking about in his prayer to his father in the gospel of St. John, which is what they always cite, that they all be one. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. One final thing from me. I, yeah. I it was also interesting to think about how um, talks about uh, how it talks about our self-knowledge and our function. I, I pulled up the Bible when you mentioned that part in Genesis. Yeah. It, it's actually completely right. Yeah, it is before the creation of Eve. Yeah. It's amazing. It's pretty amazing that our knowledge, it's like I heard it explained once that this sort of knowledge is our infallible knowledge of our noose, like the unveiled noose when it's right. not veiled by the by the passions of the flesh. Right, right. Yeah, yeah this, this, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no that's this is our this that. is our problem that, that our noose is darkened. Our noetic, the noetic faculty of our soul is darkened, and so not only can we not receive God's, are we not ready to receive God's revelation, but at the same time, it's also our our vision of the created world is distorted, at the same time. So it's the scientific and the scientific method is not enough. Right, the scientific method has to be paralleled with the spiritual method, which is the purification of the soul from the passions. The illumination of the news. Only then can we come to a true understanding of what it is. Until then, the scientific method only gives us a partial view of things. 
um, everything's connected, right? The spiritual and the material. So, uh, it, you know, we have to work towards spiritual purification. That's what I don't understand when you bring up scientific method. How does that work with orthodoxy? Well, the scientific method is purely observation, right? Oh, okay. Um, what you observe the created realities, right? Uh, you observe how gravity works, right? You measure certain things, forces and uh, acceleration and uh, vo velocities and this and that and weight. And, uh, you know, and then from there we get physics and chemistry and all the, all the natural sciences. And so that's all based on observation and measurement and experimentation, right? Reproducing a certain result. That is true knowledge. But when it's, when it's not, when it's undertaken with a darkened noose, with a darkened uh, noetic faculty, um, it, it leads to delusion. It's, we just take the fragment and sort of expand it. And so people obviously, um, our brain, for example, has neurons and there's electric activity in our brain. But then there are people who have a darkened noose. Their soul is darkened by their passions who then say, well, all of our experience, everything we say is all re uh, reducible down to these electromagnetic frequencies in our brain in these chemical reactions in the brain, right? So that's where the scientific method by itself is, goes off uh, in the wrong direction. People use the scientific method, they figure out this, this they get this partial understanding of reality, and then they, then they, go, you know, they go off in a, on a tangent and, and, and lose track of things, confuse themselves even more. True knowledge starts with the purification of the soul and scientific knowledge fits under that. It's subordinate to that. Okay. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for a wonderful class. Again. Oh, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. So next week, we move on to the next chapter of St. Nectarios. Uh, and... Um, We'll uh, regroup um, in the same place at the same time. Until then, everyone have a good week. Um, and on Monday, we have the Feast of the Nativity of the Theotokos. So may the Holy Mother of God intercede for us and grant us strength and wisdom uh, and salvation. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.